So today I want to talk about opportunistic violence, the occurrence of revenge and denunciation in times of terror. More specifically, I will look at how people remember, articulate and give meaning to acts of violence perpetrated between ordinary individuals in times of terror. And I consider its implications for sociality in the aftermath of violence. For this, I draw on the memories and narratives of people who lived through Sri Lanka's terror, known locally as the Bishanir, in the late 1980s. This intensely violent period from 87 to, 18, uh, to 1990 engulfed the majority Sinhala communities in southern and central Sri Lanka in terror, fear, and immense suffering. This work is based on ethnographic fieldwork I conducted for my PhD for, from 2007 to 2008 with people whose lives were touched by the Bishanir, the terror. This paper is an extract of a book I'm writing called Violence, Torture and Memory in Sri Lanka Life After Terror. It's due out early next year with Routledge, so I'd be very grateful for your constructive feedback on it. So let me start with a quote from Kanchana, a former Sinhalane surgeon I met during my fieldwork in Sri Lanka. He told me, When I remember that time, I feel a big terror in my head. In those days, we couldn't stay as we are doing now. We couldn't sit here and talk like this. You didn't know when the gangs would come and abduct you. It was a time during which we didn't have the mental stability to carry on with our education or economic activity. It was a lonely time. My brothers and I had to hide. It was especially dangerous to be by the main road. You didn't know when you would get abducted. You didn't know who would abduct you. You couldn't trust people. I saw shootings, bodies burning, piled on tires. It was an uncivilized and lawless society. Kanchana's face was etched with a distinctly troubled and somewhat distant expression as he attempted to articulate his traumatic memories of Sri Lanka's terror. His words tumbled out in cascades. They followed no particular chronological or thematic order. Fear, uncertainty, isolation, vulnerability, mistrust, and human relationships stretched to breaking point were his themes. For Kanchana, the very act of remembering past violence was unsettling. It recreated, in his words, a big terror in his head. This loaded statement highlights the traumatic legacy of the Bishanir and the power of its memory to impress on the present. Kanchana tellingly suggests society to have been wild and uncivilized during the terror. He stresses the permeation of mistrust and uncertainty. For example, not knowing who your abductors really were and not being able to trust people around you. He depicts a normative moral world turned upside down by terror, where people are rendered devoid of human qualities. He talks about people being reduced to behaving like uncivilized animals. In doing so, Kanchan alludes to the occurrence of opportunistic violence between intimates amidst the Bishanir. The occurrence of violent revenge and denunciation based on personal enmity and its perpetration between ordinary individuals at the grassroots is a disturbing and little-talked-about feature of the Bishanir. Silence and taboo surrounds this form of violence post-terror. Nevertheless, I found that stories of opportunistic violence cropped up here and there in people's overall narratives of the terror in an almost cursory but consistent fashion. 
Many people I spoke to specifically referred to this form of violence, revenge and denunciation as avastavadi. The singular word avastavadi may be translated as opportunistic. Its use here suggested acts of violence perpetrated by opportunists who exploited the overall climate of terror and chaos for personal gain at the expense of others. Memories of this particular form of violence were morally unsettling. The moral repugnance people expressed in their stories was directed at its perpetration between intimates, people of the same ethnic, religious and linguistic community, an indirect violence that was often perpetrated between neighbours, work colleagues and sometimes even so-called friends. The negative moral judgment passed on opportunistic violence post-terror was also based on the personal rather than the political motives that underpinned this violence. In a retrospective post-terror context where opportunistic violence was popularly deemed wrong and immoral, remembering carried significant implications for sociality post-terror. It further rendered the mediation of these memories an ethical exercise. Significantly, people used opportunistic violence as an idiom through which to comment on the ways in which terror invades intimate relationships. Unlike many other forms of violence, Avastavadi violence seeped into the very foundations of everyday intimate sociality in the present. Anthropologists have argued that cultures of terror have their own grammar and underlying structures. Studies on terror, predominantly based on the South American experience, have highlighted the devastating impact of terror on social relationships and the intricate meshing of uncertainty, fear, suspicion, paranoia, and panic. Studies have also shown denunciation to have been a rife everyday practice in the context of terroristic regimes, such as that of Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. Denunciations by ordinary people here were mainly carried out to fulfill personal goals rather than being ideologically motivated. What this suggests is the alarming readiness of ordinary people to actively collaborate in terror. Similarly, literature on European witch hunting graphically illustrates the willingness of ordinary people to denounce as witches those with whom they had personal grievances in their eagerness to root out the enemy within. These acts, too, were influenced by an atmosphere of fear, suspicion, and uncertainty. Kalivas has argued that while political actors use civilians to collect information and win wars, it is also the case that civilians use political actors to settle their own private conflicts, in effect using these political actors as private contract killers. In other words, by falsely denouncing one's personal enemies to the state during times of terror, People are able to solve their personal problems by delegating violence to the authorities. Kalivas aptly refers to this as the privatization of politics. Despite the tendency to view revenge as abnormal, irrational, and even perverse, studies have shown revenge to follow predictable patterns, to have rational goals, to comply with certain norms, and to discharge prescribed social functions. My research finds that mediating memories of opportunistic violence was morally unsettling. Because it meant acknowledging the willingness of civilians and intimates at the grassroots 
to actively contribute to nourishing the terror from below for personal gain. This was a terror that was generally considered as being imposed from above by the state and powerful political actors. So here I build on Fitzpatrick and Galletley's work. Moreover, the climate of terror, fear, chaos, suspicion and impunity fostered during the Bishanir offered people a unique opportunity to solve their personal problems by getting rid of their personal enemies. It made available to civilians manifold and convoluted routes for involvement in violence. People's narratives of revenge and denunciation show the violence of the Bishanir to have been complex and murky, leaving various amounts of blood on people's hands. Thereby, it blurred the lines between perpetrator, victim, and witness. So while people tend to think of the violence during the Bishanir as occurring between the state and the JVP, which is the main insurgent group, narratives of opportunistic violence showed that the reality on the ground was much messier. My research also finds that people's narratives further carried the assumption that this form of violence had transgressed the normative values that were expected to guide everyday social relationships within the Sinhala Buddhist community. Finally, I argue that the moral judgment passed on this type of violence post-terror overall laying the distinction made between public and private motivation, and in the extent to which it was perceived as being intimate rather than political. So, for example, while insurrectionary violence was seen to have a public political agenda, revenge and denunciation were seen to have personal and selfish motives, and so were deemed morally unacceptable post-terror. So before I move on to consider individual narratives in some detail, let me give you a brief overview of Sri Lanka's Bishanir and the occurrence of revenge and denunciation. The 1980s opened a new and bloody chapter in the modern turbulent history of Sri Lanka. There was a dramatic escalation in the well-documented civil war in the north and east, led by Tamil militants, the LTTE. At the same time, the state was also grappling with a violent insurrection led predominantly by young Sinhala Buddhists in the south and central regions of the country. Sinhala Buddhist people make up the majority community in Sri Lanka, and the violence here occurred within the Sinhala community itself, as opposed to being interethnic. This bloody insurgency was led by a radical youth movement called the JVP, the Janathavi Mukti Peramuna, or People's Liberation Front. The JVP insurgents were mainly drawn from educated, unemployed, rural, socially marginalized backgrounds. Their aim was to replace the state with one based on Marxist nationalist ideology. In 1987, they launched a campaign of violence and intimidation directed at the state and members of the Sinhala community. The JVP targets were wide-ranging, from politicians, civil servants and trade unionists, to media personalities, academics, and anyone they considered a traitor. Just as their success seemed imminent, the insurgency was brutally crushed by state counterinsurgency violence. Police, the military, paramilitary groups, and vigilante gangs stalked their human prey across villages and towns, abducting, torturing, disappearing, and killing. Those hunted relentlessly by the counterinsurgency forces often included people who had little or no involvement with the insurgents. Estimates of those who died vary from 40,000 to 100,000, while thousands more were disappeared. It is this period that's known as the Bishanir.
The occurrence of opportunistic violence during the Bishan era is a well-known secret within the Sinhala Buddhist community. It is commonly acknowledged at popular level that the Bishan era witnessed the playing out of personal squabbles in the public political arena, as some exploited the climate of terror to denounce neighbors and even friends, in effect signing their death warrants, and to carry out violent revenge attacks on personal enemies. But the subject of revenge and denunciation between intimates during the Bishanir has not been systematically analyzed, nor have specific accounts of such indirect violence, to use Kalivas's term, been recorded. The study of this is hindered by a lack of evidence, mainly due to the taboo that surrounds this form of violence. Revenge and denunciation during the Bishanir took place both at the macro-political level between politicians, the security forces, the JVP, paramilitary groups and vigilantes, and at the micro-level, involving apparently ordinary civilians, often with no avowed allegiance to either the state or the JVP. I was told of numerous incidents where people denounced neighbours with whom they were locked in land disputes, work colleagues with whom they had a personal grievance, love rivals on the basis of jealousy, political opponents, and even friends against whom they harbored petty grievances. Many research participants represented revenge and denunciation as having been ubiquitous. But it's important to note that such indirect violence during the Bishanir was sporadic, and that it did not follow any discernible pattern, although, as we shall see later, people did come up with various explanations in an attempt to find a logical pattern to its occurrence. Most importantly, we must bear in mind that there were many people who had selflessly risked their own lives to protect their neighbors and loved ones from the terror. I want to reiterate that my intention here is not to question why people perpetrated opportunistic violence, nor is it to find some logic to its occurrence. Instead, I'm interested in how people gave meaning to opportunistic violence and how they mediated its memory, along with implications for life after terror. Revenge and denunciation went hand in hand during Sri Lanka's Bishanir. Denunciation was commonly used as a means of exacting personal revenge. The frightening specter of the Gornibilla, the US-inspired masked denouncer with a jute bag slung over her or his head, is perhaps one of the most enduring memories of the Bishanir. The use of the Gornibilla by the state put intense pressure on community relationships. It created a debilitating climate of mistrust and fear, anxiety about who was behind the mask, whether it was an intimate or personal enemy, heightened the climate of terror overall. A simple nod of the Gonibilla's head in the direction of an individual would seal the latter's fate. One man who had not been involved in the JVP but was nevertheless rounded up before Agonibilla's public identification parade told me, if a fly landed on the Gornibilla's head and he shook his head to get it off, the person who happened to stand in the direction of that shake would be taken away and killed. The majority of research participants told me that the Gornibilla often nodded in the direction of his or her personal enemies, regardless of whether or not they had been involved in insurgent activities. Through the use of the Gornibilla, the state nurtured a culture of denunciations, manipulating fear, encouraging people to monitor the behavior of their neighbors. This in turn put insurmountable pressure on social relationships. 
The Gornibella shows the difficulties of maintaining intimate relationships amidst violence. It blurred the lines between the private or intimate and the political. The terror undoubtedly led to a debilitating sense of fear and disempowerment for the majority of people, but the dynamics surrounding the Gornibilla illustrate people's active manipulation of the wider conflict for personal benefit. Through the Gornibilla, we can see Kalivas's privatization of politics at work, where civilians use political actors as private contract killers to do their dirty work. The vast majority of research participants were hesitant to speak directly and openly about the occurrence of opportunistic violence during the terror. I had to invest much time and effort in developing trust to elicit stories of opportunistic violence, where acknowledgement of its occurrence was ultimately forthcoming, denial of complicity was a recurring narrative theme. Stories of revenge and denunciation were often recounted in the third person, as having taken place between other people in other areas. So distance was put between the teller and this form of violence. Some people, however, readily told stories of being victims of malicious denunciations and revenge attacks during the Bishanir. Many people expressed disgust at the exploitation of the terror by so-called ordinary people for personal gain, and at its perpetration of violence between neighbours, on countless occasions, I was privy to disparaging critiques of neighbors who were secretly accused of having personally benefited from the terror. It was alleged that they continued to enjoy the fruits of their ill-gotten gains in the post-terror present. One man in his early 50s who had not been involved in either the JVP or the state security forces burst into tears as he told me that certain members of his kin continued to make his life difficult by falsely accusing him of having exploited the terror for personal gain. This was some 20 years after the Bishanir. He said that the accusations were driven by jealousy at his family's success. Anil, a tuk-tuk driver who witnessed firsthand the violence and apparent havoc of the Bishanir in his village, told me, the key factor in, all, in it all was personal revenge. It may have started off as a social revolution about problems between the rich and the poor, but it ended in personal revenge. It really broke trust in the community. It came to be about private squabbles like land disputes. Based on denunciations, people killed from various sides. It happened over such petty things, and you didn't know who was doing it. I could be talking to someone in the afternoon in town, and perhaps I may have said some little thing that the other person took offense at, and in the evening I would be killed. Politicians were also at it, taking revenge on their political opponents. At that time, people's sense of justice and rationality vanished. It was people in the village who were killing each other, people who knew each other. If it wasn't crushed in 1989, the whole country would have been destroyed through that. Anil's apocalyptic description suggests that revenge and denunciation developed a dynamic of its own, blurring the lines between perpetrators of political violence and non-combatant civilians or intimates. He shows opportunistic violence between intimates to actively contribute to the perpetuation of terror driven from below. Anil remembers the devastating impact that this violence had on social relationships, mainly in sapping trust in the saturation of suspicion, and in the escalation of fear based on uncertainty. 
Anil suggests that the terror rendered ordinary people devoid of rationality and justice. He portrays a world in which normative values and order are turned upside down. His own moral outrage is palpable when he stresses that this form of violence was exacted between intimates. In his words, it was people in the village who were killing each other, people who knew each other. This indicates an underlying assumption that intimate relationships are bound and guided by certain normative values and ethics, and based on a modicum of trust. In willingly exploiting the terror for personal advantage, these intimates are viewed as having transgressed the normative value, moral values that supposedly underpin Sinhala Buddhist communities. Anil perceives the crime against morality to be so grave as to threaten the very survival of Sinhala society. Anil, interestingly, recounts his story of revenge and denunciation, mainly in the third person, showing it to have taken place between others. He speaks in the first person only to hypothetically position himself as a potential victim. As well as distancing himself from this form of violence, he implicitly emphasizes his innocence by stressing his own potential vulnerability to opportunistic violence. Some people use stories of revenge and denunciation to express how they dealt with violence and to portray what every day was like during the terror. People remember drawing on a range of strategies to negotiate their very survival. The everyday negotiation of terror was rooted in the careful management of sociality with intimates and in a fear of intimates. Terror then is shown to alter social interaction and to drive a wedge of paranoia into the heart of intimate relationships. Suspicion now becomes the primary marker in negotiating sociality. Several research participants told me that they chose to distance themselves from their neighbors due to mistrust and fear during the Bishnir. They retreated into the relative safety of their immediate family. However, they stressed that they were careful to avoid the frightening consequences of unintentional snubs. They did this by maintaining polite and cordial relationships at a superficial level, for example, when bumping into a neighbor on the street. Some, on the other hand, spoke of treading a delicate path by balancing relationships between people from opposing political sides, regardless of whether they agreed or not with the political agendas of these factions. This was a dangerous course to follow, but it was deemed necessary for survival by people who felt that they were caught in the middle of opposing factions. Raja, whose brother was in the army, told me that he secretly maintained a congenial relationship with the army through his soldier brother's contacts. But at the same time, he made an effort to sustain a good relationship with the JVP insurgent leader of his village. Raja described taking energy drinks and tending to the JVP leader of his village when the latter was laid up in bed having sustained injuries from a military ambush. This parlor strategy could have brought on calamitous results, but for Raja it secured his life. When some JVP carders in his village tried to kill him, the JVP leader intervened and saved his life. Others recalled making the onerous effort to go out of their way to be painfully nice to their neighbors. This was driven primarily by the desire to avoid being the object of denunciation and revenge. Nihal, an academic who witnessed the insurrection as a young boy, told me, 
There was no trust in our village at all. Everyone made a special effort in their behavior towards each other. Everyone was scared of each other in the community. Since you didn't know who was on what, what side and due to fear of denouncers, everyone made a special effort to be nice to each other. So because we were scared of denunciations, we tried to be friends with all. Before this, there were a lot of land disputes, but during this time, these disputes reduced as people tried to be nice to everyone else. The notion of uncertainty nurtured by violence featured strongly throughout people's narratives. Uncertainty here is largely concerned with what one really knows about their neighbors and friends. Uncertainty is grounded in the notion of intimacy itself. People had to grapple with the uncertainty of who the dreaded denouncers and abductors were, whether they were an intimate, whether neighbors and friends could really be trusted, and what their real agendas and affiliations were. Nihal's narrative echoes that of Anil, from whom we heard earlier, in suggesting that the intolerability of terror is rooted in uncertainty, and that sociality with intimates magnifies the potential threat of violence during times of terror, instead of intimacy protecting against violence. Many people remember the reality on the ground as involving numerous confusing agents drawn from various levels of the conflict. They remember the violence of this period as being characterized by a multiplicity of allegiances and agendas. Memories of opportunistic violence were influenced by the post-terror context of recall. People's engagement with past violence carried moral resonance for their sense of self and social relationships in the post-terror present. Shehan, a former JVP insurgent, told me, Revenge took place across the country. Gangs would dress up as the army and abduct people, and people would pretend to be the JVP and abduct others so that the JVP was blamed. Then there were so many gangs which had various names like black cats, yellow cats, green tigers, and eagles. So the government was killing, the JVP was killing, there were paramilitary groups and vigilante groups all abducting and killing. You didn't know who was who, because people would always assume the identity of the opponent. In the midst of all this, ordinary people lost their way. Shehan, like Anil, whose story we heard earlier, speaks of revenge as having been a universal occurrence, taking a place across the country. He too narrates his story of opportunistic violence in the third person as having taken place between others, thereby distancing himself from it. Shehan suggests that people lost their way or were stranded amidst the chaos of the terror. This implies that people were in a sense carried away by the violence, that their so-called normal values and rationality were suspended in the process. This explanation of opportunistic violence divests its perpetrators of agency and instead seems to represent them as being victims of the overwhelming power of terror. Shehan's rationalization of violence is conducive to the functioning of sociality between people in the post-terror present who had had various degrees of involvement in violence during the Bishnir. Many people who depicted society as having gone mad with ordinary people turning on each other tried to make sense of this violence by blaming it on the nature of Sinhala people. They implied that perpetrating opportunistic violence during the Bishnir 
was somehow biologically intrinsic to the Sinhala people and thereby unavoidable. Within the confines of the Sinhala community, people frequently bemoan certain stereotyped negative traits that they claim to be peculiar to their ethnic group. These include, for example, envy, readiness to backstab, and greed. These negative stereotypes in reality function as a strategy to differentiate Sinhala people from other ethnic groups. For example, minority Muslims and Tamils are commonly assumed to be united and loyal to others belonging to their respective ethnic communities. Many research participants drew on these existing myths and shared secrets to make sense of the morally incomprehensible occurrence of opportunistic violence. People drew on such negative stereotypical traits to explain what they saw as a descent into brutality where people trampled each other for personal gain. Several research participants told me a common joke that does the rounds within the Sinhala community, albeit with slight variations to suit the context of the terror. The joke goes along the lines of there being three large pits dug deep into the ground in hell, one pit to house each of the main ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, the Sinhalese, Tamils and Muslims, While security guards surround the pits of the Tamils and Muslims to guard against SKPs, the Sinhala pit is left unguarded. The reason for this, I was told, was that if one Sinhala person tried to escape, the others in the pit would be sure to drag her back down themselves or to denounce them to the other guards. In people's attempts to give meaning to the opportunistic violence that took place within their intimate social worlds, we can see the workings of what Hertzfeld has called cultural intimacy. According to Hertzfeld, cultural intimacy exists in those supposed national traits, the self-style stereotypes that insiders express ostensibly at their own collective expense, and which entails a recognition of those aspects of a cultural identity that are considered a source of external embarrassment, but nevertheless provide insiders with the assurance of common sociality. This intimate Sinhala joke, while appearing divisive on the surface, in reality functioned to represent Sinhala people as a distinct and cohesive community by recasting negative cultural myths. In a terror that in many cases destroyed the ties that held communities together, people drew on essentializing strategies to make sense of their morally unsettling memories of intimate violence. In doing so, they were trying to reimagine a sense of intimate community in the aftermath of terror, where silence permeated and reconciliation was lacking. Revenge operated at various levels, took numerous forms, and involved those from across the political and social landscape. I'll now focus on a personal story of revenge in some detail. Shanti is a young, attractive mother of rural middle-class background. Her older sister was murdered during the Bishanir, seemingly by the JVP. However, Shanti's narrative suggests that it may have been a case of personal revenge rather than a political killing by the JVP. Shanti's story is interesting because it highlights the legacy of violence and its implications for the recreation of sociality post-terror. Its significance lies in how the victim's family attempts to come to terms with and respond to the violence they experienced. So Shanti told me, it was really my sister who took the family forward. 
So it was a huge loss. It was a case of personal revenge to destroy our family. They wanted our family to fail, but we didn't. Our family survived. We were not destroyed. We all managed and forged ahead. We all got ourselves an education, and we all got decent jobs without the help of any politicians. They never found the killer. There are people I suspect, but we don't chase after it to find out, because what he did was pow, bad karma. And he will have to deal with the natural repercussions. It was the JVP who did it. They put posters up saying so. We weren't hassled again in any other way. The murderer tried to destroy the family, but it was a success for us. We made it a success by studying hard and finding jobs ourselves. When the police wanted me to identify the man and give a description, I didn't. We didn't denounce anyone. I don't want to fill my life with pow, bad karma. That man must also have a wife and children. The wife and children may be perfectly innocent people. I don't want to destroy their family. The man who did that won't ever do well in life. After that incident, we moved away from society. Our family was always involved in village affairs. But after that, we, moved, we stopped engaging with society as much. If someone asks for help, we'll give it. We still go for funerals or Buddhist merit-making rituals, but that is all. We don't get involved with the society beyond that. Shanti's story illustrates the confusion surrounding incidents of revenge that took place during the Bishan era, with opportunists taking on the guise of either the JVP, the military, or some other group. People were unsure as to who killed or disappeared their loved ones. Shanti shows violence here to create further ambiguity and uncertainty, particularly when it comes to holding people to account. At one point, she believes the attack to be a case of personal revenge motivated by jealousy. But at another point, she states that the JVP carried out the murder and remembers the JVP's acknowledgement of responsibility for it. The murder may have been carried out by an opportunistic JVP supporter with a personal grievance against the family, by the JVP itself, or by an ordinary person under the guise of the JVP. The victim's family is unlikely to find out the truth. Shanti invokes the Buddhist ethical framework of karma as a coping mechanism. She uses it to come to terms with and make sense of her experience of violence. She rationalizes that the perpetrator will have to suffer the karmic consequences of his life, of his crime. She also later told me that the person she suspected of murdering her sister was already suffering terribly in this life. Reflecting on past violence through Buddhist ethics inadvertently works to prevent further acts of violence post-terror in the form of revenge attacks. By telling herself that the natural law of karma would ensure that justice is meted out to her sister's murderer, Shanti finds a way of deflecting resentment, reconciling her past, and continuing to live with those responsible for violence post-terror. Shanti emphasizes that she is careful not to engage in bad karma herself. She even refused to give a description of the perpetrator to the police, an act she classifies as denunciation. Through this, she makes clear her moral judgment on denunciation and distances herself from it. Her narrative is an empowering one. She represents herself as defeating the perpetrator both in moral and practical terms. 
in a situation that she was unable to control, Shanti emphasizes defying the odds and making her life a success. She refuses to stoop to the level of the murderer by partaking in bad karma herself. Sociological analyses of revenge, particularly relating to societies of honor, suggest a regulatory element to revenge and a predictable pattern that follows a violent act entailing appropriate retaliation. But this didn't seem to apply to many of the cases of revenge and personal score settling that I came across in the Sri Lankan context. For instance, Shanti's refusal to even give a description of the aggressor to the police defies a predictable course of events that some sociological analyses may ascribe to such an aggressive act. Rather than triggering a course of vengeance, Shanti instead chooses to make sense of the event through her religious beliefs and focuses on making a success of her own life. She uses the experience to alter her approach to social interaction with her community. So to conclude, I'll briefly summarize my main arguments. My research finds that the mediation of memories of opportunistic violence was morally discomforting. It necessitated an acknowledgement of the willingness of so-called ordinary civilians and intimates at the grassroots to nourish the terror from below for personal benefit and at the expense of others. The negative moral judgment passed on violent revenge and denunciation post-terror was further based on distinctions made between the private as opposed to public political motivations and in the extent to which this violence was perceived as being intimate rather than political. Opportunistic violence was also assumed to transgress the normative values and everyday ethics that underpin Sinhala Buddhist communities. Moreover, this form of violence shows that the reality on the ground during the Bishna was messy and murky, leaving various amounts of blood on people's hands and blurring the lines between perpetrator, victim and witness. Thank you.